Thank you, worship team, and good morning, Valley Bible Church. And those of you who are joining us this morning via live stream, this is the way Mother's Day should look like. Um, beautiful weather, um, flowers blooming, uh, the lilacs blooming. So happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. Uh, we hope that this will be a very special day to you. I want to give a shout out to a couple of um, special ladies this morning to wish a happy Mother's Day. And the first is Marta. Marta, happy Mother's Day, your first Mother's Day. And we are grateful that you are well and pray for your little son that he will continue to grow and, um, and mature and soon be home from the hospital. So we wish you a very happy first Mother's Day. Uh, the other person I want to wish a Mother's Day to is Rachel. Uh, Rachel, um, you are remarkable, and on this unique first Mother's Day for you, I'd just like to say you are a natural, and we love you very, very much, and we are also glad that you are part of the uh, number one rated life group in Valley, Valley Bible Church. So happy Mother's Day to you ladies. The weather is beautiful and uh, much for us to rejoice about. Tara and I were out Friday shopping and um, and um, reminded us how much we we miss all of you, and we really do. It's Again, it's hard to explain what it's like being here on Sunday mornings, and no, there's not a big crowd. It's an empty, empty room. But we were out shopping, and we ran into a number of people uh, from Valley Bible Church uh, out shopping, you know, hundreds of people at the platform, and there's nobody here. But anyway, we ran into a number of people, and later Tara said it felt like Christmas um, to see some of our church family. And so we miss you, and we miss seeing you, and we look forward to that day when we will uh, be with you soon again. So we're going to continue the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and let us pray first, shall we? Father, we greet you with great thanksgiving this morning that the sun has risen in all of its glory, and so has your sun. And you shine your warmth and your light upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that all of creation says glory. We thank you for the mothers that are represented in Valley Bible Church and in our families uh, uh, beyond that. Would you give a particular blessing to them? And this morning, as we look at your word, we approach you through faith in Christ. We know that we are, each and every one of us, unworthy to understand your word, um, to live it, and to be in your presence. But we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, being justified by faith in him. And so we come with boldness, but with reverence and with joy. And we do so now in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You know, um, this is a, a remarkable passage, and it's uh, probably fitting for us to, uh, on this day, uh, talk about a remarkable woman on Mother's Day, this Samaritan woman at the well. We don't know that she was a mother, even though she had many chances with five husbands and then a guy she was living with, but we don't know that she was, and uh, she wasn't always remarkable. Um, she was remarkable, remarkably notorious became, before she became remarkable. But Jesus made the difference in her life, and he changed her. And so she does become a remarkable woman that we can hold up this morning on Mother's Day for all women to look at and say, this is the kind of woman that 
we would like to become and men should become like her as well. She was an outcast. We know how the story begins. She arrives at uh, the well at uh, Sychar, Jacob's well, and she comes alone. We know that she had five husbands and she was living in sin with the present man. And she comes alone, an outcast from the women of, the, of her community, definitely from the men. And she meets a Jewish rabbi and she's surprised that he talks to her. In fact, it's probably the first time in a long time that someone has noticed her presence, acknowledged her, spoken kindly to her, given her any attention at all. And she knows she's a sinner. It comes to be that he, he, he says some important words where he said, if you only knew who spoke to you, if you only knew who it is who's speaking to you right now, and the gift that I offer you, then you would ask for this water, because they're talking about living water. And what it comes down to, he is going to reveal who it is that is speaking to her. He is going to say, I am the Messiah. And he says, I am. He is not only the Jewish Messiah, but he is God. And he reveals that to her. And he gives to her this gift. And he said in his conversation with her, the gift is the gift of eternal life. If you drink freely of this water of believing in him, you will have life springing up eternally within you. But you must become a worshiper, a true worshiper of the true God. She says, when he comes, the Messiah, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus says, I am. I am the Messiah. I am God. And so we have the response of the woman. What does she do from here? What does she, uh, how does this change her life? And that's what this uh, rest of the story is. This is the uh, the fourth week that we've spent talking about her, and we want to look at her response. And this is what we're going to see, that we should urgently invite others to Christ. Urgently invite others to Christ. In this passage, um, she is going to illustrate this. We're going to see uh, uh, the, the example of this woman who urgently goes and, and with great enthusiasm, she goes and seeks out others to come and to find the one in whom she has believed. And we see this from her example. So we see, first of all, in verses 28 and 29, it says, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, the woman leaves her water pot. Remember the story as we left it here um, before the interlude of Jesus talking to the disciples. She's talking to him. She's got this kind of a long, comfortable, easy conversation going with him. And he says to her at the very end, I am. She's saying the Messiah is going to come and he's going to reveal all things. And he says to her, the one who is speaking to you, I am. The name of God in the Old Testament. At that very moment, the disciples return. And at that very moment, she leaves her water pot. It's very abrupt. We see that, uh, that she actually leaves very, very quickly. There's something has changed. Something is different. They've had this long conversation. All of a sudden, she just drops what she was doing and she leaves. And why was she there? She came to get water. The fact that she left a water pot, we don't want to make too much of that in a, in, a, uh, in a metaphorical sense. I think that detail just simply shows us that something has changed, her priorities have changed, and abruptly she exits. 
She leaves the water pot and she leaves Jesus. In fact, when you look at the, the, the language, it says she left, she went, and she speaks to the men. Very, very quickly in the original. She left the water pot. She went to the city and she's there and she says to the men, something is happening in this woman's life. It implies a change because we see this enthusiasm in verse 29 when she says this. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. It's very urgent. This is an imperative. It's like you've got to come and see this guy. Uh, this happens to us sometimes. We say something on the Internet. We read an article. We meet someone and say, you've got to look at this. You've got to meet this guy. You've got you to watch this movie. This has so affected her so dramatically. And she says, she says, you've got to come and meet this man who told me everything about my life. And she says, this is not the Christ, is it? I don't think she's uncertain. I don't like, uh, I'm, I'm not a, a fan of the New American Standard translation here. The idea is really this, um, could this be the Christ? And I think she's brilliant in, in raising the question. Come and see for yourself. This could be the Christ. You need to find out, but you need to come and see, because this man has told me everything about my life. You know what else uh, demonstrates that there is a change here? Who's she talking to? The men of the city. She didn't have anything to do with the men of the city. She didn't have anything to do with the women of the city. She didn't have anything to do with Jews. And she goes right to the most important people that would listen, that should hear this message, in that culture, which would be the men. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. Women don't have anything to do with men. Jewish women, in, in, or I mean Samaritan women, and a Jewish man together, no way. And she was an outcast among the women of, the, of her city. She was definitely an outcast amongst the men of the city. We don't even know what her name was. But say her name was something like Jezebel. She was a byword in that community. Oh, there she goes. <laughs> the jokes the knowing glances, the whispering, maybe the catcalls. She was an outcast in every sense of the word. And what does she do? Where does she go? To the men. She goes into the belly of the beast to tell them about this man that she has met. Something has changed. Her thirst is quenched. She has the gift she is a true worshiper of the true God. And she is enthusiastic. And she is urgent. And so should we be. This is the man who told me all the things about me. The commentators all say this. Well, she's exaggerating, but it's forgivable. Is she exaggerating? I don't think she is. Because what Jesus said to her was this. He says, go call your husband and we'll talk about this eternal life. I don't have a husband. Right. You had five. The man you're living with right now in sin is not your husband. And so the commentators look at that and say, well, he, he just had a, a brief conversation with her. And he just said a, you know, a couple of things about her past. Certainly it was miraculous, but it wasn't her whole life. Now, was it? She's exaggerating. I don't think so. I think he looked into her soul at that moment. 
I think with his penetrating gaze, he looked into her heart and he saw all that she was in a moment. And she knew that she was flayed open before him in that moment. Like David says in the psalm, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And then he goes on to say, when I rise up, when I lie down, wherever I go, whatever I think, whatever I say, you know everything about me. And at this moment, she knows he knows. The other thing that I think is, remember what what she says to him last before she leaves. When the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And when he reveals his true identity as the incarnate God, when he reveals his true identity as the Messiah, she's changed, she's undone, she is transformed because he has seen into her heart and her past no longer matters. Her past is now the past. He has looked into her. It's like a a computer scan looking for viruses and it comes up immediately. Here's all you see. You see it right at once in the same way uh, he scanned her heart. He saw everything and she knew it that he saw everything. Perhaps you knew that. Perhaps you have experienced that. Sin, righteousness, and judgment, that's what the Spirit of God convicts us to. He convicts us to sin and to righteousness and to judgment. And when we come to Christ, there is a moment where we say, Oh, I am undone, for I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And we need forgiveness. And that was her moment. The lesson for us at this point is this. Shame of our past disappears when we come to Christ. Shame of our past disappears when we come to Christ. You know, there are shame cultures that exist still. There are many of them, but the Japanese culture, for instance, or the the Chinese culture, for instance, you don't want to shame your father. You don't want to shame your family or your, comfort, your, your country. You don't want to behave in a way to bring shame upon another. What we're talking about when we, sh- when we say shame is, is primarily an emotion that we have for guilt that we possess. Guilt in the forensic sense means I actually did something and I'm, and I'm guilty of it. The emotional part of it is, is that I feel guilty. Why do I feel guilty? Because I am guilty. And I feel guilty, and it's a, it's a sense of shame. Shame and guilt, uh, in, the, in, the, in the emotional sense, are almost synonymous. And she had a great shame for her past. And it was gone. It didn't matter anymore. And it should be true for us as well. We don't live in a shame culture, do we? Uh-uh. In fact, in our culture, anything goes. What was she ashamed at of when she was talking to Jesus? Probably her sexual life, her relationship with this man with whom she was living, and yet didn't matter because it was erased. And for in our culture, there you know everything goes when it comes to sex, right? In fact, everything goes when it comes to everything. 
And when someone uh, comes to another person and say, you know, I, I really feel bad about what I did, what is our response? Oh, no, no, no. Don't be ashamed of yourself. Don't feel bad. Well, here's the truth. Shame is useful. Shame leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. And forgiveness removes shame. Got that? Let's put it up on the screen. Shame leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. And forgiveness removes the shame. It's gone. Now, I'm ashamed of my past. And this woman was too. I look back on my life. And um, I tell you, sometimes um, it's good for me to remember those things. Um, not to go back and to imbibe in them or to relish them or to revisit them or to celebrate them, but to remember them in a, in a historic way, not in an emotional way, but in a historic way. It's a historic part of my life to which I should always come back to God and say, God, thank you that you have removed my shame. And I have to tell you, sometimes when I'm witnessing to someone, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it because I'm... It's wrong, but I'm still ashamed sometimes. And you might be as well. If we did something wrong this last week, we should be ashamed of it, if it and it should lead us to repentance and it should lead us to forgiveness. But shame can be useful. Kids, when you lie to your parents, when you disobey them, when you take something that isn't yours, when you fight with your brother and sister and you feel bad about it, that's okay. And that's the time to go to your sister or go to your mom and say, I'm sorry, because it is useful, because that is the way you will learn what is right and what is wrong, what God requires of you. And he will forgive you and your parents will forgive you and your brother will forgive you. But we have to, we have to acknowledge what we have done is wrong. We don't do that in our, in our society anymore. Parents, don't do that with your kids I've seen so many parents who they want to be so positive. They never want to talk about anything that is wrong. The Joel Osteen of parenting. Well, let's not talk about sin. It's damaging. You're going to create more sin. When your children is, is, is sorrowful, I mean, you can be lazy about it and you can say, well, uh, I don't want to even deal with it right now. Let's just have the spanking and get on with it. You need to talk to them about what has gone wrong. But the, one of the worst thing that you, things that you can do is to ignore your child's sin. And just, oh, it's okay. But what you really did was, I know you meant this. No, no, no. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And shame and guilt are a necessary part of us coming to faith in Christ. But the good news The good news is that it's gone. It's taken care of. Cultivate the soul of your child because godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to the remission of sin and the removal and the cleansing of all shame. We've all done things that we're not proud of. But God does not hold that against us in Christ As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from us. Has he removed them? And those who are in covenant with him, in Hebrews it says, their sins 
and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That means he's not going to bring it up. Why do you live there? Why do you shake your head? I'm not worthy. I'm no good. You don't know what I did. You don't know what I did. You don't know how unworthy I am either. But biblically, we embrace that forgiveness and we move on because God doesn't want us to continue to live in shame. Got that? He wants you to live in the joy of forgiveness. Look at verse 30. They went out from the city, that is the men, and were coming to him, to Jesus. The woman runs into town and says, you've got to come and see this guy. He told me everything about myself. This could be the Christ you need to come and see for yourselves. And they went out of the city. What a remarkable thing. This woman probably leading the charge. And their, their uh, departure from the city is just as abrupt as her departure from her water pots. They went and they were coming. They heard her message and they were coming to, to Jesus over a period of time. They went out from the city. Now, here is a point where there is that, the interlude that we looked at last week. Because as they are walking back up to meet Jesus, the disciples had come to, to back with the bread. And they have the, the discussion about, um, about the harvest. And he tells them to look up into the fields and see that the harvest, some sow and some reap. And it, that's okay. It's all unto the glory of God. And we are, we're, we're glad to be part of it in any way. It is possible, many have pointed out, that when Jesus said to his disciples, look up, that when they looked up, they saw this group of people walking up the road. In fact, many years ago, a Bible scholar by the name of H.V. Morton was uh, visiting the Holy Land, and he was sitting at that very well, and he said this, As I sat by Jacob's well, a crowd of Arabs came along the road from the direction in which Jesus was looking, and I saw their white garments shining in the sun. Surely Jesus was speaking not of the earthly, but of the heavenly harvest. And as he spoke, I think it likely that he pointed along the road where the Samaritans in their white robes were assembling to hear his words. The harvest of souls. I got a note from Joan McKinley this week who said, I'll quote her. Hope it's okay, Joan. She said, when we were in Ethiopia a few years ago, the verses of the harvest being white was illustrated right before my eyes. As I was walking in downtown Mikhail, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, suddenly a large group of men, all dressed in white robes, came rushing through town. Immediately my mind envisioned the Samaritans in white robes coming out of Sychar to see Jesus. A great reminder that the harvest is plentiful, but sadly, Jesus said, also the workers are few. But this lady, you see, was one of them. She went out and she's calling them to come. And in verse 39, it says, from that city, city many of the Samaritans believed in him. This is the first mention of the word believe in this whole extended section of the, the story of the woman at the well. And this is what the book is all about, is that that those who read and see these things would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him, they would have life eternal. And some of these Samaritans believed in him. Why? Because 
of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. There was a certain part of her testimony. He told me all the things that I had done. This didn't make sense to them. They were surprised. The last person who would ever come and talk to them was this woman, and they saw some remarkable change. From that city they came. The disciples, when they came back, they brought bread. She brought back men. She was bringing in the sheaves. We see Jesus' words about the harvest of reaping and sowing being played out before their very eyes with this woman whom God is using in the infancy of her faith. Many believed. Many believed because of her testimony. Here's a lesson. A changed life, a change in your life, is a truth that cannot be denied. When your life is changed and people see it, you cannot deny that. Those who see it cannot deny it. When Christ came into my life, it was obvious, and people said to me, what happened to you? Because something did happen to me, and something happened to you as well. Even if you've always been a good girl, even if you've always been a good boy, no, you haven't. You haven't. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There cannot help but be a change when someone is born again and has the Spirit of God living in them. How can there not be a change? That's why it's so important to look at fruit and we should emulate the the joy and the urgency of this woman. All of us as Christians should be ever changing in our relationship so that we are able to say to someone at some point, this is what Christ has done for me. This is how he has changed me and changed my life. Second lesson is this. It is often the least likely that God brings to faith. But it's also true that it is often the least likely that God uses to bring others to faith. And such were some of you. Such were all of us, right? Such was me. Unlikely to believe. Unlikely to lead anyone else to Christ. Unworthy to believe. Unworthy to be forgiven. Unworthy for anyone to listen to my testimony. Yet it is the way of God, isn't it? That is the way it is supposed to be. This is God's way. You see, this way, who gets the glory? It's not you. It's not me. This way God gets the glory when he uses the most unlikely of all people. That's the way God works. The insignificant, the weak, the wounded, the unattractive. Me, 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 me. I fit the bill in every one of those. And you may as well. That's this woman, weak, wounded, insignificant, socially unattractive in every way.
And yet, God delights in calling her and changing her and allowing her to speak. Come and see. You've got to see this man. Which brings us to our next lesson. God uses the genuine joy and enthusiasm when we invite others to Christ. He uses our genuine joy and our enthusiasm. If Think about this for a minute. When someone talks to you about something important and they come alive, doesn't it get your attention? Or if it's like, oh, well, whatever. If we are not enthusiastic about our relationship with Christ, who is going to listen to that? I confess that happens to me sometimes. Someone finds out, uh, I, you know, I get talking to someone, there's an opportunity for a, converse, for a conversation, and it's like, you don't really want to get into it right now. i got other things I want to do. Or it might, uh, maybe for you, it's like uh, someone finds out you're a Christian at work, and you say, yeah, I go to Valley Bible Church, and, and church is a big part of my life. Is it? Like we sang this morning, no, Christ is my life. He is our life. Not part of our life. He is our life. When do you come alive? Talking with people is, is when you're talking about golf or when you're talking about music or you're talking about fishing or you're talking about your job or you're talking about your children or your grandchildren. Of course you do. But do you come alive when you're talking about your relationship with Christ? Kids, you know the song, right? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy, if you have joy, if he's made a difference in your life, shouldn't it be evident to those with whom we come in contact or just it's and whatever? This woman, you could not keep her quiet. Could not keep her quiet. By the way, when we're talking about inviting people to Christ, that doesn't mean you have to sit down and, and, and at that very moment invite them to pray a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Invite them to church. Invite them to dinner. Invite them to meet some friends. Invite them to read a book. Invite them to read the Bible. Invite them to go to a website. There are many, many ways that you can invite people and begin to invite people. This is not about door-to-door talking to strangers. This is about relationships, building relationships with people, getting to know better the people that you already know. And these are the people who knew this woman. That's why it had such a profound effect on them. We got to go see what happened to Jezebel. She's, She's different. She's changed. I never saw her eyes before. They were always averted. Here she is, smiling. I've never seen her smile. I've never heard her voice. And yet, these men followed this very, very strong woman. This is girl power, right? On Mother's Day, this is girl power. 
truly is. God uses this genuine joy in our life, even when our theology isn't, isn't fully formed. Was her theology for, uh, fully formed? Of course not. In fact, we, we're not even sure what she meant when she said, this is not the Christ, is it? Or could this be the Messiah? Um, I think that it was a, a brilliant ploy in just uh, um, um, piquing their interest and getting them, their, their, their evoking their thirst for the, the water that she had to offer through Christ. But still, what did she know? She didn't know very much. She didn't know that much. And so God uses genuine joy and enthusiasm in our lives, even when we don't know all the answers. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please, I know so many of you, I've heard over the years who say, well, you know, I'm afraid... I'm afraid of what people are going to say, what they're going to think of me. What if they ask, ask about evolution? What if they ask about uh, um, all the problems and contradictions in the Bible? You know what you say? You say, I don't know. But here's what I do know. This man has seen my heart and changed me, and he is the Messiah. Which brings us, by the way, to our second point. Our first is that we, we should be invite people urgently and invite them to Christ. But, but second of all, always entrust their salvation to Christ. Urgently invite, but we always entrust their salvation to him. We can invite, but we never save. Do you get that? And we, we see this in, the, in, in the, the next part of the story. The passage illustrates this in, in the men of the city. We have the example of these Samaritan men. We can invite people, and we should do that with great joy and urgency. But we don't save them. That's the work of God. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. This is uh, interesting. Um, uh, Samaritan men, remember Samaritans and Jews, have nothing to do with one another. And they're saying, Rabbi, stay with us. What? They have a hunger to do God's will. They have a thirst that cannot be quenched. They're willing. They saw the change in the woman. Some are believing some still needing more information. They're saying, please stay with us a couple of days. And what did they talk about during these two days? Oh, lots of stuff. By the way, um, um, John uses another, this important word once again, where he says, they were asking him to stay, and he stayed with them two days. It's the, the Greek word meno. We saw it first in chapter 1, where um, um, Andrew and John uh, came to Jesus and they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they went and they stayed with him. The word meno means to continue, to abide, to stay with. This is the word that Jesus uses in, in John 15 to talk about he is the vine and we are the branches and we are plugged into his life. We are part of him. He in us and us in him. Abide in me and I in you, he said. And we are to remain in that relationship. We are to continue because it demonstrates the life-giving force of eternal life coming from the vine to the branches, and it demonstrates that we are continuing in Him, and they were remaining with Him. 
And what did they talk about? Same thing that Jesus talked to the woman about. This is who I am. I'm the Messiah. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I offer a gift. That gift of is eternal life. If you accept that gift, you will be true worshipers to worship the true God. That's what they talked about. That's the gospel message. That's what we talk about with others. He is the Messiah and he is God. Verse 41 tells us then, many more believed because of his word. You know what happens? A whole community revival is taking place in Sychar. What started it? The most notorious woman in town. Because God changed her life. They were getting plugged into the source of life by drinking the water that he offered. She was doing the will of God. That food that, uh, that satisfies Many believe because of the word of the woman, but notice it says many more believe because of the word of Christ. It's not not slighting her in any way, saying, well, she wasn't important. No, she was important. But what did they believe? What was the basis of their faith? The word of Christ. This week I was talking on the phone to one of my granddaughters, And she said, Papa, you want to hear my my memory verse? I said, yeah. She said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The the excitement of her, uh, a young lady who uh, learning a new truth and she hasn't had time for it to become stale like the rest of us. That was new and exciting and urgent and, and genuine in her life. But it was also what I'd been thinking about in preparation of this passage. It was like, Bang! Out of the mouth of babes. She nailed it. By the way, Annabelle, happy birthday today. This is her birthday. Thank you for giving to me the heart of this passage. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And that is our lesson. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10:17. So therefore, ladies and gentlemen, trust in the power of his word. Not yours. Not your knowledge. Not your experiences. But trust in the power of his word. Again, rather than worrying about ourselves and our inadequacies, We have to trust in the power of God. Elsewhere, it's put this way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek and the Samaritans. What is the power of God? The gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that God became a man that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that all who repent, those who let go of their shame, and they turn to him and drink of that water and accept the gift by faith, will live eternally. Their lives are transformed. And so when we tell people our message is the gospel, 
We get so sidetracked in so many issues. Trust in the power of his word. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and listen, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That sword pierced that woman's heart and revealed her thoughts and her intentions. It goes on in Hebrews 4, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It basically says we're naked before him. He sees you. He sees me. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. And he still accepts you and loves you. Remarkable. If I knew everything about you, would I still love you and accept you? If you knew everything about me, would you accept me and love me? If God gave you special grace. God gives my wife special grace every day. But God alone knows everything about us. So here is the point once again. That's what happened to this woman. He laid her bare. He, he struck to her heart. He, he, he opened up the thoughts and intentions of her heart. That's what happened to us as well. So therefore, let the word of God and the gospel do its work when you talk to people about Jesus Christ. Again, the, the message is this. If someone asks you something that you don't know, say, I don't know, but here's what I do know. And then quote the the verse, quote the word of God. It is powerful whether they believe it or not, and that is the thing that is going to bring them to Christ. We have to trust that salvation is of the Lord. It is his work. It is not our work. And so we, we, we share with people, we do that urgently, we do that with great enthusiasm, but in the end, we must trust, always entrust their salvation, how it's going to work out, we entrust it to him. Verse 42. And they, that is the men, We're saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Uh, They're not belittling her anymore. It's not like they stopped believing in her and started believing in Christ. No, they stood on her shoulders. But it was the word of Christ that was the kicker. We see that she is being used in the same way, in the way that Jesus was speaking about sowing and reaping, we see that before our very eyes, that's what, what is happening with her words. But no, notice the emphasis of what they say. For we have heard ourselves. You have to come, you have to come to him yourself. And we know. We've been convinced of this truth. And what is that truth? That this one. This very only one, with a capital O, indeed, without a shadow of a doubt, is the Savior of the world. 
It's the only place other than in 1 John that this phrase appears, the Savior of the world. In the Old Testament, the Savior is God. He is the Savior of the world. They came to the same conclusion that the woman came to, that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah God, and he is the one who forgives and gives eternal life. Think about this for a minute. They are in Samaria. They're not in Judea. And Jesus would give the the great commission in Acts 1.8, and he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses where? Both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. The gospel is going to go to the entire earth. He is going to be the savior of the world, not just the Jews. After the initial persecution in Acts, Philip goes back to Samaria and more people come. And so we have all these Samarians coming to faith in Christ before the Jews come to faith in Christ. He is truly the Savior of the world. Here's the lesson for us. Jesus is the ultimate harvester. Yes, we invite, but we totally entrust, and we always entrust, that salvation of others to him because he is the ultimate harvester. And since he is is, uh, going to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, we might say that he is the international harvester. This is the the one case where I have uh, used allusions of, here in this case, the international harvester, where I will say, People of Green Acres, you are probably the only ones who understand what international harvester is. Everybody else, you need to call your friends from Green Acres. So finally, yay, you made it to the big, the big show. In fact, the first person from Green Acres who comments online as to what international harvester means, you will win $1 million, asterisk. Some conditions apply. But anyway, let us know. We would like to see. Who knows what international harvester means? Point is clear, isn't it? Salvation is of the Lord. Comes from him, not from us. And here's the final lesson for us. Our final lesson is, all we are saying is this. We must urgently and enthusiastically Invite others to Christ. But we must always remember, and we must always entrust their salvation to Him. That's all we're saying. Urgently, enthusiastically, joyfully call others, bring them in, but we must always entrust their salvation to Him. The disciples brought back bread that would satisfy a hunger that would only return. And this woman brings back a harvest of souls, having done the will of the Father that lasts into eternity. What a woman. What a remarkable, remarkable woman. The harvest is being gathered 
And it all started with one outcast. Personal application for you as we close. And it is this. Come and see for yourself that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You've got to see this for yourself. You've got to meet him. You've got to come. But you have to see for yourself, just like the men of Sychar, just like the rest of the people, we assume the women and children came to Christ as well. But you have to see this for yourself. And I'm not saying to you, if you tuned in this morning and you're not part of Valley Bible Church and you're beginning to understand this, or if you're part of Valley Bible Church and you're beginning to understand this, that's okay too, that the word of Christ gives you that faith. All I'm saying is keep coming back to him. Read this book. Read John. And ask him this question. God, show me yourself. Would you reveal yourself to me? I want to know if this is true. Would you do that and read his word? I encourage you to do that. You know, when Andrew and John asked Jesus where he was staying, he said, come and see. When the woman left her water pot and went to the men of Sychar, she said, come and see. And actually, when Nathaniel came to Philip and, and, and Philip said, uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And the end of the ages say this from the book of Revelation. The end of the ages say this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take water of life without without cost come. We invite you to Christ. We thank you, Father, for your word, which is unalterable, which is sufficient. As a Savior, we know we need rescuing. Implies that we are sinners, and indeed we are. And it implies that you are sufficient, and indeed you are. And I pray that we would live in a way that we would joyfully invite others. And that right now, some would come and believe that he is their Savior. For it is in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen.